welcome to the Infertility Sisters podcast, the place where we discuss all things trying to conceive infertility and baby loss, with the aim of breaking down the taboo of these unfortunately common life experiences. You'll hear from us on our personal journeys, from experts, as well as other everyday Kiwis. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and leave a review. All right, welcome back to another episode, everyone. Today, I have three lovely ladies with me uh, who are the authors of the new book, When Sex Is Not Enough. We have Mel, Steph, and Simone. Hello, ladies. Hello. Hi. Thank you for joining me today. So for anyone that hasn't seen this book, you girls have done a lot of media interviews. I've had friends tell me about it. So um, (laughs) you've got it out there really well. But for anyone that hasn't seen it, it's a book about all of your stories, your individual stories. I really love how you've laid it out to the pivotal moments of fertility and things that you might look back on or experience throughout it from each of your individual experiences. And yeah, I was just telling the girls that I flew through it in a day and a half. It's such a good read and something that you can hold on to and refer back to forever or pass on to and recommend to friends as it becomes relevant to them. So yeah, thank you all for putting your time into a book like this for our community. Thanks so much for having us. All right. So what we'll do is we'll talk through the um, girls' stories and then we'll kind of touch on just topics that are touched on in the book but also just part of our world and infertility world and then uh, you girls can let us know where to find the book before we wrap up so yeah let's talk through your stories first um so I'll start I think that was the look they were giving me I'll start so I'm <laughs> I I talk a lot when I've talked about this that I was a human biology teacher at high school and so And I like to kind of tell people that because it is important in my story that right from the beginning, I knew something was wrong and everyone gives you the whole, oh, don't stress. It'll be fine. Have you tried this? All of that kind of thing. But I, I knew the hormone cycles. I could tell you exactly when I was ovulating. I mean, I knew what ovulation was for a start, which some people, you know, don't even know that kind of thing. So yeah, like I knew what was going on. So I did, I knew straight away something was off and we went to our doctor you know, you've got to wait the year and all that kind of thing. Went to our GP. He even kind of said as a passing comment, we'll test your husband first because it's really easy to rule out half of the equation, which again kind of shows how, and I, I love my GP, but it's just that kind of slant that it's going to be female issue. Lewis did a sperm sample and we got a phone call to say you need to come in. And it was that like, that moment of, oh, you know, that's never a good phone call. So we went in and there was basically zero. I think on the first test, they said there was zero sperm. Let's do another test, you know, stress and all sorts and bad sampling and all of that kind of thing. So we did another sample, zero sperm. And so basically from there, there's there's some muck around issues with the system, but we ended up doing IVF. We did ICSI where they inject the sperm into my eggs. Very, very lucky that I'm an egg producer I have polycystic ovaries, so IVF is actually great for me. And we were successful on our first round and now have a three and a half year old Layla. So a positive story from that. Yeah, so that's my story in a nutshell. Yeah, I really related. Lydia and I both were male factor was the obvious oh, thing when yeah. we started investigating. Did they investigate anything once you got those results for your husband? Did they do any more investigating on you? Or was it like, oh, this is the problem. Let's move straight to IVF? No, they did. I did get tested. And that's when they found I had the polycystic. And they did like some, they did my hormones and that kind of thing. But it was all really good. So they pretty much assumed straight away that I would have no problem conceiving. That it was just the sperm. Quantity and quality. There was poor, it was poor quality as well. Yeah. And did uh, they end up finding some sperm or was it surgically retrieved? Yeah, so he had a varicocele done, which is when like a, a bundle of blood vessels kind of wraps itself in the scrotum area, which can can prevent sperm obviously getting out from the scrotum. So he had that, that was like keyhole surgery. He likes to say he was cut in half, but it was keyhole surgery and it didn't didn't seem to make a difference. But we did bank sperm, so over a period of... Oh, maybe a year he kind of went in 
every now and then and and bank some sperm and then on the day of my egg collection they got him to do a sperm sample and there was sperm in that fresh sample as well yeah, yeah. my husband's just had the procedure done for a varicocele yeah. oh, two months ago as yeah. well it's such a weird experience for him being awake in theater with them going in and doing the die and watching everything yeah but we're yet to find out if it made a difference they're going quite high right because they they come in and down so I think there was that moment of uh you do realize what you're supposed to be doing here right like why are you not down there where you're going yeah (laughs) excuse me can we keep what operation you're doing here yeah cool well thanks Mal shall we go in order of the book Steph sure yeah so I'm a different kettle of fish again um which I think is why it worked to have three different journeys but all the same end goal so for me I was it was in 2013 so I was 23 and I had been experiencing loads of intense endometriosis symptoms for years and it just went undiagnosed for so many years and I guess as a woman it's really crazy to think now that I look back on that time and I and I look back and I thought that was my normal because I guess, although I'm a very open person, a very open book, for some reason, I guess I just didn't talk about my cycle with people or something because no one else kind of went, shit, that's not normal. So anyways, eventually after going undiagnosed for many years, I remember the start of it was just swelling hugely, tremendous amount of pain that just wasn't going away. So I went to my doctor, my GP at the time, and he pulled in a, um, a wheeled in a ultrasound machine and had a look. And it all started with a um, what he saw that day was a 20 centimeter cyst. So on a very small, like 45 kilo frame, he was just like, yep, you need to go straight away. So I had that first operation and got that removed. But unfortunately, um, I have a history. I was three months preem. So I was a very unwell little baby, which led to different things like open heart surgery, scoliosis, gangrene through my intestines. So I had already had a world of issues going on in there. So it wasn't like slice, boom, there it is, take it out, you're good as new. You know, she was an eight to 10 hour surgery and they could only get to the one. And there was all these other things going on in there that they could see. Fast forward, once I recovered from that, I went and saw the gynecologist again to do a follow-up. And yeah, he could barely do an internal. It was out of control again. And the worry was because I just wasn't a, for lack of a better word, normal human being body, you know, I'd had all this trauma and scar tissue and all these things. It wasn't, it wasn't straightforward for me. And I like to say that because I don't want anyone who's got endometriosis to think, oh God, I'm going to end up like her. Because that's not the case. I did have some other stuff going on. Yeah, Um, we've um, had a lot of people on the podcast that had or do have endometriosis it's so common and it's so obvious that that ranges and varies the effects on people so drastically exactly and it's yeah it's and it's you say the word endometriosis like it's one thing but it can be in all different parts of the body you know like I had it um, through my rectum I had it you know sticking my liver I think it was or my kidney or something to another part of my, another organ and it was it's a sticky matter that kind of just takes over um, like a spider web and it was everywhere so and then of course you have those cysts which are growing on the ovaries and all those kind of things so anyway you know uh, it took uh, after that gynecologist appointment he he did lay down sort of the options and and I did get some hard truths that day which were we can keep trying to fight this we can keep putting you under the knife, but there's no guarantee that you're actually going to come out the other end because your body just isn't going to withstand the, and you know, that, you know, I'm talking about the whole stomach is cut open at one, you know, like it's all very gory. So uh, it took about six to nine months to make a decision between my husband and I. Um, and, and I guess I touch on that a lot in the book, um, that decision-making to go through and have a full hysterectomy. And from there, so um yeah I think we started off the journey initially we went okay to save your life we're going to take this road we're not going to risk it anymore and we're going to go down this um this road it wasn't till a few years later when we got a bit older and we decided that it was time to start a family and adoption isn't foreign to our families we've got members in the family that are and so we were like yeah why not this would be great so we initially started our journey for traditional adoption in New Zealand, that is not common anymore. It's very, very rare, which we didn't know. So it was a bit of an eye-opener. We were, yeah, I think it was about 70 Auckland couples alone 
waiting, let alone the rest of the country. And, and it's less than 10 a year traditional adoptions in New Zealand because, you know, there's fungi, there's abortion, there's a whole range of different options you can have now, you know, in, in the 21st century versus back in the 80s where if you weren't married, well, that's just what you did. You got, you know. So anyway, we went down that and that was not successful. We, you know, we, we tried and we tried and we waited and we waited. And then we decided... Um, one day uh, we had a friend, this is one of a couple surrogates that came along during the way that said, oh, you know, I could do this for you. And we started considering that idea and we thought, well, why wouldn't we put our embryos into someone? Why? And and it just seemed like the, for us, there was a bit more security around it in some ways where we could get nine months notice, you know, not like an adoption where you get about 10 days, you know, and then it's boom, see you later, your whole world changes, you know, so that was really eye-opening to me from reading the book is how short a notice the adoption process can be I guess it's not always but can be and yeah especially you talking about how you could just have to uproot your life and you don't want to say not no no but you could be on holiday or just yeah yeah, in a stressful situation at work or anything Steph is a planner, so if you if you know Steph, you'll know that that's not going to work well with Steph. Like she no, did. look, it, the, yeah, the anxiety was through the roof. I think, I mean, it's yeah, it was it was you do anything to have a child, but at the same time, you know, I I wanted a little bit of control in that situation, um, and then but on the other side of that, and I do talk about that as well, where surrogacy is one of those journeys that unfortunately in New Zealand there's no guarantee. So you could get all the way through it. You do all the counselling. You do everything through the books. You know, it's not a turkey-basting exercise at home. You do it all the right way. And and then they can give birth and say, you know what? No, I'm going to keep the baby, even though genetically it's not theirs. In some cases, some cases it is, whatever. But the point is, it, it gave me a word of anxiety on the back end. So it was, the for lack of a better word, is a double-edged sword. And we, and we tried one way, so let's try another way. So uh, first surrogate, kind of, we started the process, didn't work out. Um, we had offers from friends and stuff. And eventually um, we got to a point where we went, let's post on a Facebook page. It wasn't a surrogacy page. It was just a random New Zealand gossip page with about 20,000 people on it. And we thought, hey, why not? There's a bit of everything on this page. So I anonymously posted. <clears throat> and that's how we found our surrogate. Fast forward a long process, ECAT, counselling, um, getting to know her, getting to know her family, getting to know her kids, her parents, working on a relationship, ticking all those boxes, her being the right BMI, the right um, non-smoker, non-drinker, you know, like all the tick boxes. And we got there. And you know what? It was, you know, um, I still think um, no matter what, it was all worth it. You know, it was such a long process. And I think it's just, you know, those things that take a long time, you just learn to appreciate, you know, so deeply. So, um, yeah, uh, after a year, of, a year of the process, I guess, and then nine months of pregnancy, obviously, we we had our little boy, Grayson, just as we entered level four lockdown um, in New Zealand for the first time in 2020. And then from there, it was about five months later, we officially adopt our son because in New Zealand, the laws, unfortunately, are not up to date. And in 1950, the only way you could have a baby was to have sex. So uh, in this case, Janelle, the surrogate, was legally his mother and named on the birth certificate. And Matt and I, my husband and I, had to go to court and adopt him officially. It's just mind-boggling, isn't it? I've just thought I've never actually asked you this. Sure. Was the judge like, what the heck? This is a joke? Oh, he was a really lovely guy. And 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 it was really explained to me before. Because what was the other upsetting thing is normally you have all your family and friends there and you celebrate because it's such a big day. It's the end of this entire, you know, it's like a big circle and you're finally closing it off, you know. And unfortunately, again, we were in lockdown. So it was very, very restricted numbers. We had Oranga Tamariki there because I invited her because I love my caseworker. Our lawyer, who's a very good friend of mine, a beautiful soul. And um, Janelle, because of course she was there, the surrogate, and the judge. And and that's all we could have. But he was so excited. Mm-hmm. And the way it was explained to me is they see so much sadness in family court that when they get an adoption case, um, especially a surrogate adoption type case where there's been an intended process from the day dot, the idea of even having a child. He was amazing. He was so excited. We took these beautiful photos at the ends with him. And yeah, it was lovely. Yeah, you're right though, Mel, that some of the judges must be like just as passionate as we are about how out of date the yeah. system is, right? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. 
Um, one part of your story, Steph, is when you were making that decision to have the hysterectomy, did you do and make your embryos bef- like once you made that decision and before they did the procedure? Where, where did that? Yeah, it had to, yeah, it had to be timed with the operation, and luckily there was something there to take at the time. Otherwise, that wouldn't have been the case. So, there, you know, as I said, it was a nine-month sort of process, and some of that was kind of coordinating timing. So, um, yeah, we were lucky at the time to do that, but there was always a risk that that wasn't going to happen either. So, we had to be prepared regardless. Yeah, and I guess you potentially only got one shot. At yeah, that's it. That's it. Embryos. They're going in once. Yeah. 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 Which is scary in itself. Our first round of IVF, we got one embryo. So, you know, like if you end up with that and you can't go again, yeah, that, that just would have been a whole other stress. I know, I know yeah. there's other options and you were thinking of adoption, but having those embryos there are a good backup plan. Yeah, that's right. And is it Simone or Simone? Simone. Yes. Simone. Yeah. So, yeah, my, my story started when I was 19 young girl going into the gynecologist for a you know routine smear only to be told at that point that I had stage three cervical cancer went in for multiple surgeries to get that cancer removed and yeah I remember sitting in the doctor's room for a follow-up appointment just saying to him you know this is really scary is it going to affect my chances of having kids when I'm older um, and he turned around and said, no, it won't affect anything. We got rid of all the cancer cells. You're good to go, basically. Of course, you know, go for your annual smears like every six months. And then after a few years, then then do it annually. But um, so I did that, um, thought everything was good. My husband, Rob, and myself moved to New Zealand from South Africa. Start a better life for our family. You know, we got married. We went by the book study, got married, bought a house, you know, and then we were ready to have kids. 2013, we got married, we started to look into, uh, you know, trying for a baby, wasn't happening, six months went by, nothing happened, a year went by, nothing happened, a year and a half went by, nothing happened, so we're like, okay, there's something clearly wrong, otherwise, you know, we we still joked around and said, are we actually doing it right? (laughs) I think most people make that joke, don't they? Yeah, totally. You tried everything, you know, putting pillows under your back and putting your legs up on the wall and all sorts of weird and wonderful things that you used to try to try and, you know, get pregnant. But we thought, you know, there's something clearly wrong. We're not falling pregnant. We're trying every month, multiple times, you know, around kind of ovulation, still nothing. So we went to our GP and we had a chat with her. And she said that we should probably go and talk to a fertility specialist. So we went to, we were referred to Repromed, um, had a specialist there that we did two rounds of IUI with. So he suggested that we try first with IUI and see how we go. We had two failed rounds of IUI. He then suggested that we go with IVF. So we had two government funded rounds of IVF that we did through them both failed it was quite disappointing at a time because we we didn't quite know what was going on we weren't really given any answers we kind of sat there and we were really perplexed to be honest we were like it's he couldn't tell us if it was the egg or the sperm or what was going on like what were we doing wrong it was at that point I was really frustrated decided to go back to our GP now that our two government funded rounds were done and I said to her listen I'm at my wits end I don't know quite what to do I feel like I need a second opinion so it was at the point that she referred us to fertility associates to a new specialist for a second opinion I saw him within 15 minutes of my appointment with him he said to me you have endometriosis did you know that you had endo I was like no <laughs> um never occurred to me I'd never been you know never come up in conversation with my previous specialist never been checked for it he said I'm you know I'm 99% sure that you have endometriosis so he's like okay I'll do an internal examination it's really hard to to actually test through internal examinations whether you have endo um, but given history with not falling pregnant and you know doing IUI into IVF rounds he said 
he's he's pretty sure I have it and he wanted to get me in for surgery straight away so I think it was like a month later or something he brought me in for surgery turns out I had a very moderate case of endo and a few cysts that were removed as well so we did surgery to get that all removed all the endo removed then we did three rounds of IVF over the course of six years that were all failed um the, the last IVF round we actually did we had two embryos put in that looked like they were going to be okay and we were you know explained the risks involved with if both of these embryos took you realize that it could end up in multiple births da, da, da. I said what is the harm in that like if we have twins right now they'll be great you know yeah. our, our fa- little family would be complete I'm happy to go with that risk and and just do it. If we have quadruplets, then so be it, you know? So all these things, like I, it wasn't even a thought to me. I just, I was like, let's just do it. Get get the both embryos put in and let's do it. Yeah, unfortunately those didn't take either. So it's all in all been about 10 years. Yeah, 2013. So my husband and I will be married for 10 years in January, 2023. And we've it's been about almost 10 years that we've been trying to have a baby we haven't given up of course in fact we've we've just actually made an appointment to go and see our specialist again so we're looking to do another round of IVF at some point down the line but you know all those kind of feelings and emotions I was actually saying to the girls earlier when I booked the appointment that all these emotions just come flooding back and you think to yourself do I really want to go through this again you know it's that anxiety that comes with failure and it's such a silly feeling because, you you know, it's like, well, if you never try, then you'll never succeed. But at the end of the day, like if you the more you try, the more you fail. So it just kind of it's that real mind fuck that happens, you know. Um, well, yeah, it becomes you what you expect this. to happen. You expect the outcome to be failure exactly. because that's all you know. But also, you know, it could go the other way. So you've got that little bit of hope. But hope. yeah. I think sometimes yeah. that's a habit because you're when you've still got hope you you almost want to go let's just kind of sit here because then I still do have that hope whereas when yeah. you start it and it fails that's when it feels like it's like oh now what whereas if you sit now and go here's a possibility here's a possibility yeah. and that that becomes hard too yeah, yeah it's definitely a tension between that hope and possibility and yeah. that fear of failing again it's yeah it's a it's such a tricky it's tricky emotions to have to manage and yeah it's definitely it's not easy but we've got to do what we've got to do <laughs> yeah it's it's a hard place to be in because you hear and you know like your two obviously good friends that you're in this book with have had positive outcomes so you know that it happens for people and you've yeah. got to hold on to that but um yeah it's a fine balance between protecting yourself in those moments as well yeah Definitely. something that actually stuck with me in your story because it's like I'm really interested with how people handle and talk about it because it, we're all so individual and in how we do that and um in part of your, in part of the book you talk about how you uh, and your husband didn't tell friends family work colleagues for a long time you even went through your two IUIs and your first IVF round without telling your family can you talk to me a little bit about that yeah so I guess at that point we there were a lot of feelings that went with the failure that came with you know trying and trying and then not succeeding there was a lot of we just felt really embarrassed we felt very like it was a very sensitive very private situation that we were going through so we didn't really want to bring anybody into that sort of close circle because we thought that you know we just wanted to keep trying it's going to happen it's going to happen let's not tell anybody let's not bring anybody into what we're going through because we felt guilty we felt embarrassed you know all these weird feelings that went with it but you know looking back on that now I wish I had brought people in from the very start of our journey because it would have been a lot easier those first few years that we went through IUI and IVF it was really difficult because we only had each other to talk to we didn't have anybody else close to us no friends no family that knew what we were going through and at that point as well, you know, we had to, it was tough because we had to put on a brave face all the time. We had to, you know, it felt like we were lying to people every time they asked us if we were okay. Like, why, 
while we weren't going to baby showers, while we weren't going to birthday parties, while we weren't drinking. So all these sorts of things kind of, you know, were happening at the time. So, but, but looking back on it, I kind of wish that we had brought people into our kind of get situation a lot earlier on because I think we needed that support at that very very beginning when we were quite young and trying yeah, yeah that that was going to be one of my questions that I had written down was um, would you change it if you could go back and that's that's a hard thing um, because everyone's so individual so I don't want people to just take from this that they should it's totally dependent yeah. on how they feel and how vulnerable they feel like being but I also imagine there was a huge especially at the start a huge part of it was wanting to surprise people like why shouldn't you yeah. get that so and then I can imagine that as time went on it, it changed from that surprising to unfortunately feeling embarrassed which we shouldn't but it is part of yeah, it yeah it is definitely part of it and also that fear of being rejected you kind of fear that you're going to be judged like what's wrong with you why aren't you falling pregnant oh you should try this you should do this you know all these sort of things that you imagine in your mind that people would tell you the closest people your family and friends would tell you um and hey some people do say that sort of thing so the fear is real because it can happen but yeah no it's definitely something that I wish kind of had put that fear aside and and just you know confronted it head on and and really spoken to people about it because it's such a taboo topic to talk about and people are really afraid to talk about it and that's part of why we wrote the book right is to try and encourage people to talk more openly about fertility and infertility because it's not something you should be ashamed of it's something you should talk openly about it you need the support networks around you and the people that you trust and a big thing that I took away from uh, your book and I can't remember if it was in one of your chapters is bringing in those people that are good close to you and the ones that aren't just get them out of your life like that's what it comes down to because it's so hard and you're not obligated to keep people in your life if they don't react well or make you feel good in a hard time of your life and that's hard some of these shows that up quite a lot though is the um a lot of obligation like it brings up obligation in terms of why do we feel obligated to have certain people in our lives why do we, and you know, we talk about this a lot. Why do we feel obligated to go to baby showers? Why do we feel obligated to, you know, X, Y, Z? And I think for me, in, you know, in my life, I feel like that's really stood out to me is it was a real kind of punch in the face for why do I feel obligated to do so many things? And I think for me, that was one of the freeing parts of this whole roller coaster was I don't, I don't have that obligation anymore. Um, we're all going through our own different traumas. And so actually I'm going to do what works for me. And it doesn't have to be what works for someone else. Exactly. As long as you communicate with the people that you feel you need to. Yeah. Yeah. I think communication is key, right? And so there'll be people that you can be like brutally honest with, like for instance, my immediate family, I can just say it how it is and um, in the most ugly way, because that's normally how I do things. And they're, they're all good with that. They know me and they accept that and they respect that that's what I need from them. And then you get other people around you and you do, and, 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 and it's not that you're not communicating, but you have to communicate in a way that they're going to understand or that they're going to be able to, you know, cause not everyone is as empathetic as somebody else or mm. some people hear things differently. So further on to Mel's point, um, this process has taught a lot about, um, not only the way we want to be treated and the way we ask to be treated, but the way we treat others. Because I know my empathy for others has hugely grown through the experiences that I've been lived. And I'm sure as a young teenager who didn't want kids who was, you know, out partying, I'm sure I probably made ridiculous comments to people like, oh, you're married, where's your kids? You know, or something ridiculous because I was young and didn't understand. So um, with age, with experience and then personal lived experience you do you change as a human being yeah and it's oh infertility has changed myself and my husband forever I have no doubt about that but in some positive ways being yeah, more empathetic and, and and to jump back kind of ties the both kind of both points that we've just kind of brought up is around that communication piece on your boundaries and I think Steph Lovely uh, pointed out in um, another media thing we did that that's what she learned from wise old Melissa was, you know, I was really, 
I want to say good at it at the beginning was being really kind of upfront with my friends and family about where my boundaries were and why that was. And, and people loved it. They were so grateful to know where my boundary was. So they didn't hurt. They didn't want to hurt me. It's hard for everybody. So they just loved, they knew where my line was. Okay. We will text Mel privately. So she doesn't read it on social media. Don't invite her to the baby shower. Don't invite her in this group chat. She's not offended. And so everyone knew and it was just so much nicer. So kind of, yeah, ties into kind of that whole conversation there, like have the boundaries, communicate them. um, And that's everybody involved in that who accepts that there's your empathy, you know, to understand what's going on. Yeah, you do have to kind of teach people around you sometimes, don't you? And, yeah. and that was the other side of this but when I remember the day we sat down together um, and we, I just met Sim she had turned up at my house as a random woman and because um, they had you know Sim and Mel had met and me and Mel had met so Mel was the link and they turn up and we decided we get you know we're going to get together we're going to write a book because we all knew that there was something missing in our journey to help us and we were lucky to have connected with each other but imagine that person who's sitting at home right now that doesn't have anyone to connect with. And we were sitting there, we're like, what is our purpose? Because that was the only thing we cared about. It wasn't about being authors. It wasn't about making money or any of the above. It was literally just, what is our purpose? And it was one, to help people, and two, to teach people. Because the people around us appreciated, like Mal said, appreciated a bit of um, guidance about how to talk to us. Because you don't know unless you, you know, like you don't know what you don't know. So when I could say to my mom, look, you realize that comment's super insensitive. And she'd be like, really? I didn't realize. Because she's a sweet old lady that doesn't really, you know, and she's in another generation. So she really didn't get it, you know. So, yeah, it was, I think that we've achieved that by sharing our experiences. And hopefully, you know, it's also a book for people around those people, not just the people inside it you I think people will read this like if someone's a good friend supporting someone they'll pick up a book like this and they'll read all of it and they'll take so much from it and being like oh Mm. I didn't think so-and-so would have actually felt that way but of course they felt that way but they couldn't communicate that with me and yeah just when to check in or I really liked I think it was you Mel that set up the Facebook group or was it Steph yeah yeah um set up the Facebook group and so it was just on your terms of this is when I update you how I update you I don't even message a million people or I'm not going to be fielding questions because you know I'll update this group when I'm in a place too and I really like that I got that from a friend I actually went to school with she had it was her third round of IVF she got her baby and so when I knew I had known that so I reached out to her when I was about to start IVF and her she said my biggest tip is set up a Facebook group she was like, because, oh my gosh, my first round, I was constantly messaging people. People would ring me and I'd just be one, like, leave me alone. But then I get it. They, they care. She's like, this way it was like, don't text me. Don't ring me. I'll communicate via this group. Yeah. Yeah. And it is so hard because I know the first half of our IVF round, first IVF round was, I was happy. I was handling the injections well and things were going good. So I was communicating like normal. And then as soon as I got the call to say, well we've gone from nine Mm. eggs to two fertilized overnight and I I was heartbroken I didn't want to talk to anyone for probably three weeks after that and I was like oh they're all going to notice they're all going to worry I have to keep up that same communication it's that pressure you put on yourself but boundary setting is so important and I think a lot of people going through infertility will learn this from your book but also if yeah people are reading to support they'll understand a little bit more of those boundaries that people might not have been able to communicate yet Mm. yeah yeah. Um, one thing I did want to talk to you um, about, Mel, or bring up that you talked about in the book is the survivor's guilt. And it's a shame that Lydia can't be here tonight because I know I like I know this is going to resonate. I took photos and sent it to her because I knew it was going to resonate with her because <laughs> like you, she was successful on her first round and first transfer. And now she's so in this world with the podcast and with me still on the journey that she's really struggled with not feeling like she fits in this world and our friendship has been fine but it very easily could have not been yeah how did how did you um, find that well I think one of the cool things cool you know wrong word but one of the things that the three of us set up right at the beginning of this journey was we laid out again it's communicating and setting those boundaries was this might be successful for one of us for two of us for none of us 
are we prepared to carry on this journey knowing that you might sit there as the other two have have children or one does, you know, like, and so kind of fronting that was, I think, really important for our relationships. And so again, for other people, I think, you know, like you kind of, when you find your little infertility friends, that kind of conversation is quite important. I just found afterwards, like, you know, I was on cloud nine. Oh my gosh, it's, it's actually worked. I'm pregnant. I can't believe this. And then it was the, oh, like, well, where do I sit now? Like, I'm not the infertility person and I'm not the person who goes on and on and on about on my rants because that's who I am. I, I can't do that anymore. And how I can't put posts up on my social media about having a baby because those people used to piss me off. Like, so it was this thing of where do I sit? But again, it was, I guess, setting boundaries with myself around what I was comfortable with and knowing what I know from somebody who had struggled I would want to see something because I'd be annoyed if they didn't because there's that awkward kind of thing there. But also like, you know, have some empathy and don't throw it in my face. And I don't need to see every single photo you've had of your your baby. You know, so a little bit of common sense that isn't so common. But I think, again, navigating the survivor's guilt with not feeling like you could feel angry or upset or um, this isn't fear. You know, my birth story wasn't great and I felt like that wasn't fear but then thinking, well, I can't because I'm so lucky. And so for, for me, it was this real moment of sitting down going, I can actually feel more than one emotion at once. Like, of course you can, but it was this real moment of clarity for me. Like I can be so super grateful and also be whatever. And so that was my kind of guilt release was going, I still am someone who struggled with infertility. I'm still someone who went through that trauma And I've come out the other side, just like a car crash survivor, just like someone who chemo has been, it's exactly the same. So yeah, you still have that trauma. Yeah. And it is what I find so unfair. And like so much of this world is we can put unfair in front of everything, every sentence that we start, but the celebration of your pregnancy when you are pregnant, it's do I announce on my social media? Do I invite XYZ to my baby shower because they're also on this road but they've been a big part of my road and then when the baby's here as well it's like you know even if you do decide to do those things there's guilt attached with it whereas these people that have an experience in fertility get to do all of this stuff without a second thought Mm. yeah I and when I remember even sitting with people in a cafe and just and holding this baby and being like, don't talk about her, don't everything, you know, like anything. And it was like, she was like three weeks old, I think at this point. And I'm fully like, ignore her and talk. And it was like, I've got this newborn baby, but I was so kind of mindful of meeting a different need and not being all about mum life and baby life now that I probably went too far the other way at the beginning, um, which was a little bit detrimental to my own mental health. But yeah, it's fun. <laughs> So so much of it is just that shit that's ripped it up. (laughs) Shit. On that as well, Steph, something that I took from your story is something that I've caught myself doing is our tendency to justify our actions and the things we say. So from the book, Steph, you um, you know, when you say that you chose to share about your hysterectomy, you immediately say not because you wanted to play the victim, but to share your story. And it's that need to justify why we share. It's another guilt thing, isn't it? And it's another awkward, and what are people going to think of me for telling my story? It is, absolutely. And I, I mean, there's so many layers of it as well. Like you think about social media and, and like, you know, there's just so many different angles, something you could write the littlest thing and it's completely blown out of context by this person. But what I have learned along the way, the more you try and get into someone else's head, the less you're in your own, Right. So if you try and think, oh, what is this person thinking about that? And then, oh, if I put this book, this person's going to think that. And second to like Mel, what she was just talking about then as well, like it is tough being on the other side. However, there has to be a balance between your own happiness and and what you're sharing and empathy empathy towards other people. So for instance, you know, I had a, a group of girls that I, you know, met, hung out with, babies the same age sort of thing. And I never felt I was able to complain because... I was so happy and so I ostracized myself instantly from them because they were able they were comfortable being like oh this sucks this baby's up all night my tits are sore all the things 
And I was just like, oh, I'm really happy because I was. I was in this honeymoon stage. But at the same time, it, it pushed me out of the group that now I was meant to be in. I was on the, you know, like what, what and to that point, well, where do I fit again? So, yeah, it's it comes with each side. But no matter what, as long as you hold a kindness for the for the for the group you fit in before, even though you're in this group now, just like if you were poor and now you're rich or vice versa and have that empathy level and, and be cautious and kind about what you say, you can only do what you can do and you can't control what other people think. So if they're going to think, oh God, she's putting that on Facebook again because she's just wants some attention. Well, that's cool. But I also might've helped somebody sitting there at home right now who's just found out they've got endometriosis or that they, uh, whatever, and they needed, what is it? Um, misery loves company. Sometimes we want a pity party. And sometimes we want to know that someone else is having a shit time because that makes us feel better because we're not alone in our shit time. So yeah, that's why I did it. Yeah. We obviously have our infertility podcast Instagram account, which I can use to share a lot, but it's also, it's not a business, but in a sense, it's a business. It's a face. It's not my personal experience all day, every day. You know, I see so much on social media that I could share that I do share stuff on my personal Instagram and Facebook sometimes. And recently I shared about, it must've been miscarriage or lost something about that. And I followed it up with a still um, of me writing out saying, if you don't understand why I talk about this stuff, oh, I must've been, oh, it was our due date. That's right. And I said, I should be having a baby this week. And that's what I shared. And I knew that would make people uncomfortable. But I also knew, like you just said, Steph, that it would make people feel seen because there was, I ended up finding out there was quite a few people that had miscarriages around the same time. So I knew that others would sit there and be like, oh, yes, me too. That might not share, but want to know that others are feeling that way. And this is the fact I sat there after I did this follow up being like, this is why I'm sharing, which should be talked about. And I thought, why do I need to do that? And I just felt like saying, if you're Mm. sitting there judging me piss off like unfollow me exactly and I was trying to say it I like once I reflected on it I was trying to say that just in a nice way and that probably didn't come across that way oh no you look you're absolutely right I'm really sorry you experienced that and and I think it's really courageous that you did share that because you're absolutely right people if if they're not sitting there accepting it and, and reading between the lines of why you're doing it then they probably shouldn't be on your newsfeed anyway they can fuck right off um So um, I I try to stop justifying myself, but I know the feeling and you do get caught up doing it. But we, and as well, when we were actually writing the book, I had two of my justifications pulled out by the editor and she had written, don't need to justify, don't need to justify. And I was like, oh my God, why am I justifying my own personal decisions? But you think people are going to look at your story and think, well, therefore you belong in that box. No, I don't. It's my life. Thank you very much. Um, One thing that I do want to talk about, and I've been wanting to talk about the podcast for so long, and I've loved that you guys had chapters on it, is infertility in the workplace. Because infertility, and especially when you get into the world of doing IVF and whatnot, is a full-time job. It can be a full-time job, and you're not yourself. And it's really hard, I think, especially as females, feeling like we're not showing up like we think we should be so Simone if you wanted to talk about that especially not having told people for a long time what was that like when you did eventually tell your work and how did that go for you yeah so the girls will know this and I think I did write about it in my chapter but basically I quit my job because of infertility (laughs) I was working for a company I worked for the same company as Mel did and it was becoming really really tough I felt really guilty taking time off work. I felt like I constantly, again, having to justify why I'm not feeling well, why I'm not feeling myself, why I don't want to attend meetings because I'm just a ball of tears. At that time, I had a female boss that I worked for. She was the most, uh, she showed no empathy toward me in my situation, which is really, really hard on me. And I remember not going to an event at work the one day because I just had a failed round of IVF and something had happened to my mum and it just triggered. She, she had been holed up at work or something by these guys that were breaking in and that triggered 
a whole heap of emotions for me just having my failed round of IVF that week. And I didn't want to go to this event because I couldn't face people at that time. And my boss sat me down after the fact and said, you know, this is unacceptable that you, sh you need to go to these events. Like you needed to be at that event. And I'm like, well, I was going through a pretty shit time, you know, you know, I'm doing IVF, you know, because at that point I had told people in my, in my workplace, I told my colleagues that I was doing IVF because I think it was my third or fourth round of IVF at that point. And so that lack of understanding and empathy was really, it was, it, it threw me off. So I decided that I needed to make a change because I wasn't happy anymore at work. And I felt that I'm just doing myself a disservice by staying in this job where nobody really is supportive of me. My, my manager wasn't supportive. So I decided to quit my job and just take time out for me and my fertility journey. I started my own writing business on the side had my own hours I wasn't wasn't as stressed which is great I just felt like this whole this whole stress had just fallen off my shoulders because I had given up the job where I was so unhappy to be myself and bring my whole authentic self to work because I couldn't and I gave up my career because of fertility to take a few years out just for myself just to give myself every chance I could to fall pregnant and remove myself from that environment from that negative environment as well I needed to do that for my own mental health. So yeah, I guess in the company that I work for now, a fantastic company, a fantastic manager. I've got such supportive colleagues. I feel very open and honest about my mental health. I work for a mental well-being organization. So, you know, it's kind of encouraging people to talk openly about what they're going through. So I'm very fortunate to be in the position I am now where I can talk openly about my fertility journey with people. People, my colleagues have bought my book you know like there's heaps That's of positives amazing. yeah um and I just feel more open and more comfortable and confident to talk openly about my fertility with the people I work with nowadays compared to a few years ago where I felt like I just couldn't be myself I couldn't bring my authentic self to work um had to hide all my feelings and emotions you know yeah yeah so much stress and a lot of people the more people I talk to a lot of people do end up leaving jobs because of it mm. and that's really stressful in itself because you're constantly in that mind frame of I could be pregnant next month I need my yeah. job or I need maternity leave or whatever and it's really hard to actually take that leap of faith but if you're thinking that way it's probably time to do it and yeah exactly yeah I exactly. hope people take that from we all from quite your different experiences with work like some had that quite a negative space and um I'd left that same company a year prior to her leaving and decided, no, I'm doing my own thing. And so I completely changed my career um, at that time and ended up working, like I was, I teach bar and Pilates and I do adult literacy education. And so I do stuff that I love. I, I'm, my, I'm still my own boss. So I choose my hours. So I went straight out of that before I even started IVF. I was into that, like, this is cool. I'm so happy, blah, 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 blah. And then Steph, you had a real positive workplace experience right I did um and just on all of it, it I think it is such a key like what what they say is you spend more time at work than you do at home mm. so you wouldn't like live in an unhealthy home where you're cold every night that like, you would change that if that was an issue so why would you live a life in a workplace that you don't feel you can be supported loved whatever you know so um, I was lucky to be in a role in, in a company that I had that. I still had that huge amount of support and empathy towards my situation or or what I was or when I was going through that process. And you know, even the part about you know where I said to them, "Hey, look, I can't have the baby, but I can still do breast milk. So I need a pumping room." And I did that every three hours for 20 weeks. And, um, you know, they set me up a little room and, you know, and that's the kind of workplace. And that what they probably don't realize on the flip side of that, I appreciate it so much, especially because he was a male, not even a female, my, my direct manager, that I'm now super loyal to the company. And it, what it did for me is probably, they're not going to lose me anytime soon. And I'll work my ass off for them because... They show me so much kindness and, and trust and love and respect. So, yeah, what you give out is what you get back. So I think having a workplace that's supportive is very key. 
Well, and your boss, like you said, as a male, bought, bought the book and sent us, the three of us, this beautiful email. He's never met Simone and I in our lives. Yeah. But he, yeah. he actually sent us this message that was to the three of us. Like, it was amazing. I was like, I want to work there. We sat yeah. yeah. <laughs> that, that's beautiful. That, that, and I think it's less rare now, but it is still um, to a certain degree rare. But I hope that talking about it just brings that awareness to people in their everyday life, which hopefully mm-hmm. if they're in a management position, they take to their workplace mm-hmm. as well. I think yeah. between the fact that it's infertility is unfortunately very common now, one in four, right? So you've got that, you've got people having babies later on in life, not like our parents or our grandparents, where you were 19, you got married, you had some kids, the woman didn't work, the man, you know, that kind of stuff. So that's changed. And then on top of that, yeah, you've got, you know, chemicals and drugs and alcohol and all these other things influencing fertility. So you put all of those in the shitstorm that is current situation. And and with people like you, Jasmine, who are helping by getting the word out um, and helping bring that conversation to the front line, it would be really naive of anyone to be in a position of power, like in a management level, and sit there and not have some empathy or know somebody or somebody who has or heard of a story or isn't aware of what that looks like now, how many people are affected and what they need to do to help people along their journey. So yeah, I'd find it very hard to to continue to see people be treated the way Sim was. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, uh, yeah, you'd hope that that's changed. I I work with, well, in my team, I am the only female and I bring the average age range down a lot. And I decided to tell them before we went, I told them after our miscarriage, I obviously had unexpected time off and I come back and I told them each individually why I had been off. They all reacted amazingly. And uh, for their generation, like a lot of their generations, I was surprised. And then once we, I said in a team meeting where we go around and say what we've got to talk about or how we just are. And I said to them, look, I just want you all to know that we're starting IVF. I'm not here if I'm working from home. That's why you don't have to ask me about it, but just know that that's what I'm going through. And then that made me feel more comfortable again in that guilt of if I wasn't there or if I wasn't showing up or whatever. So it was selfishly for myself, but they all reacted amazingly. they know now. Yeah, and they appreciated it. Now I don't. Yeah, Yeah. they don't want to say the wrong comment or be like, "Oh man, she's been slack," and then find that out and be like, "Oh my god, I was such an asshole." Mm. Yeah, you absolutely control the narrative, and um, when you have control, naturally you feel you can get through it because you're dictating what's going on and as human beings we love to have a plan and 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 in a place where we've lost so much control you know like you've lost everything so where you can like Steph said control that narrative I can take it man like it's yours yeah yeah Yeah. I would never go into another job now not telling them like before I took the job like I would sit in an interview now and say hey this is a part of my life this is a big part yeah. of my life. If you're not the right manager for me, if you won't, won't be supportive and it's part of me choosing the job. And I've thought about this a lot lately because again, like leaving your job because of infertility, some people will just change their jobs yeah. and choose to jump ship and or take a quotation marks, easier job or a less stressful job, whatever it looks like. But then they will feel awkward again if, what if I get pregnant and they knew that I was trying or whatever and it looks bad. So for me, I just would front that now and just... Again, like you said, if I expect people to be more empathetic now and if I don't get a reaction that I think is good, then, yeah, again, like the other people in your life, see you later. Exactly. Yeah. I really love what you said there about it being a part of your life because I think that's exactly what it is, right? Infertility is part of who you are. It's part of your life. So if you can't go in and be honest about, you know, this is what I'm going through, you can either accept it or not accept it. You know, you can be my, you can be a great supportive boss or you, I, I'm just going to look for something else because you don't need to settle for, you know, not supportive. Yeah, yeah absolutely. We, yeah, we can control that. I had a work colleague who, he isn't one of the older ones, he's my age, but he just come and sat down in the little booth when I was having lunch the other day and just literally sat there and went, how's things going with IVF? Oh, bless his like, I know. So good. Sometimes it's all um, you want to hear, eh? It's just yeah. people asking, how are things going? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, not being afraid to, because they also know the fact that I've 
control that narrative they also know that I will say to them oh I don't really want to talk about it today if I don't want to Um, and and that's okay yeah if you're in that situation just because you're being open doesn't mean you always have to talk about it it can still be on your terms yeah okay what I'm really intrigued to talk about is a chapter that isn't in the book yes that was taken out of the book because what did your editor say it was ranty a feminist rant Let's have that feminist rant here then. <laughs> Thank you. You know, every single opportunity I have, I, I step, I'd like jump in. I'm like, well, there was also this chapter that wasn't included um, <laughs> because I was pretty passionate about it. So we, what we decided was, so every other chapter, we had a topic and each of us wrote on that topic. And then there was kind of all these kind of little extra bits that as we kind of started talking, it was like um, advertising on TV. Um, Steph will talk about laws I talk about the curriculum in schools and we're like oh they don't really fit in our chapters so let's just kind of do a general society and each of us will contribute our kind of passions in that space but you know after the editor came back to us and was like that's a feminist rant I think we all read back and we're like yeah no it really is and it didn't kind of fit with these personal raw kind of stories that we'd written but I'll talk about the piece that was kind of my passion was Again, like I said, I was a high school teacher and I did teach the health curriculum for one year. And looking back now, the real lack of what reproduction really is, and I was a biology teacher, so I literally taught reproduction, I taught health, and health, I mean, this is 10 years ago, but I'm pretty confident it hasn't changed a whole lot, that it STDs, you know, don't get pregnant, basically, is kind of the message that's being sent but, you know, how unrealistic that is and actually what we should be teaching around reproductive health, you know, like sperm health, hormone health, getting checked, all of that kind of stuff from a reproductive lens. And then on top of that, what? how do we make babies? Because actually, how many people now actually make a baby by man and woman having sex and having a baby? So why are we not teaching same-sex couples what happens for you guys why are we not teaching it doesn't happen one for struggle here's some of the again it's all science it's brilliant as a science teacher here's all the science happening so let's kind of stop setting kids up with this bullshit fairy tale around natural I'm using air quotation marks for listeners around what natural is because it's not reality so I just think from a young age, we need to be saying, hey, this doesn't happen for everyone. This is what, this is what, this is what. Rant over. (laughs) It helps manage that um, expectation and potential disappointment from an early age, doesn't it? Because I think we all felt when you got that first moment of this isn't going to happen, just this complete, like, what? What do you mean I'm not going to have a baby? That's, That's what you do. That's what happens. So, yeah, like, let's change that. It's not what happens for everybody. Here are some other options that you could undertake. Cool. Yeah, it's normal. It's, it's all totally normal. normal. It's all normal, exactly. Steph, do you want to jump in about your passion? Yeah, of course. Sorry, I'm intently listening. So, yeah, from my point of view, obviously, no one talks about surrogacy ever. So that was a whole new, you know, ball game. Um, but for me specifically, being in a situation where we found a surrogate and she birthed our child, as I said before, the law is old and it's outdated, and it. It just says you have sex, you have a baby, that's it. So all cases of of adoption are classed as traditional adoption, where meaning the birthing mother is the mother of the child. Um, and as we know, that's not always the case. Um, and it's not, and it's not only for me. And look, I know that even further, there is clauses in there where it affects gay men, gay couples even further. Whereas if you're a gay couple as males and you have a female child that you actually can't adopt the female child without special, like it's madness. So it it, does, it affects both heterosexual couples. Everyone's affected, you know, so by raising this, I mean, there's been days well before even the book, I um, remember watching Tamati Coffee on like Sunday or something. And it was after this, his first child. And he had said in the interview how hard it is for gay men to, to do this process and what he, what hoops he had to jump through and all these things. And I, and I, and being New Zealand and how fantastic are we as a tiny little country, I found him on Facebook and I wrote him a message and I said, look, first and foremost, congratulations. So excited and happy for you. Can I correct you, my good friend? We, you know, we are all in this battle together. We're all in it together. 
gaze straight, it doesn't matter. We're jumping through those same hoops. And so please, you know, let the world know that this is not just against one gender, that it involves everybody. And um, there is a whole world of us out there, people with fertility issues, people who choose, you know, their gender partner. We're all in it. Anyways, he ended up writing back like, oh, well, yeah, totally. I didn't know that. You know, thanks for letting me know because he's awesome like that. He totally responded. And the next night he was on another show, like Seven Sharp or something, whatever. And when he did it, he said, and may I just add, this affects everyone. And I heard the TV going, fuck yeah, like really excited because I was like, he listened to me. And now he's like talking about it. So um, as I said before, and what you're doing, you know, podcast getting it out in front of the media, talking about it and 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 letting people know. Because people who are just straight couples having sex, having babies, they wouldn't know. So it's not their fault that they're not behind this cause, but tell them. And I guarantee you 90% of them are standing behind you going, yeah, that's not fair. Let's do something about it. So I do understand that the bill was picked out of the bucket or however they do it in Parliament. And so it's on the cards. However, should Labour not be re-elected, I don't know if it would it's going to become or still be on the cards, which is upsetting. But I hope, look, I'll I'll be that little Trojan in the background. And if I can get a hold of national, I will, if that's what I need to do. But changes do need to be made. We, you know, science can't evolve and the law not. No, no. Is there anything that we can do, listeners, people, is there anything that we can go and sign petitions or anything? The the best thing you can do is is, um, contact your local MP. So if every, if you just find out who your local MP is, it doesn't matter if they're not in government. It can be any party. And if you just say, "Hey, I you know I watched this or I listened to this or I've heard this," you know why are our you know you don't have to know a lot. Don't be scared if you're like I don't know. I don't know the stuff that you know Steph obviously knows. You literally can write anything, but say we need to change our adoption laws. And the more people that constantly put it into MPs' ears, they have to listen. They represent us. So it, yeah, it's kind of that um, death by a thousand paper cuts. Mm. Yeah, I think yeah. a lot of people, like in my world, obviously a lot of people talk about it, and I'm um, aware of how fucked up the laws are. But and that's mainly because of social media. A particular person, Rebecca, that um, was a surrogate um, recently and documented or like stuff like that's amazing. It's getting the word out, but then it's still only a little pocket of New Zealand and yeah. people. So. Yeah, no, that's really good because I'm sure, like, for me, I would love to be able to do something to be able to help because it hopefully isn't going to be something that um, comes into our journey, but it could, and also not just because it affects me, it affects lots of other people. So that's why we should do something about it. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And what was I'll your... I'll jump in and share. Yeah, yeah so I... <laughs> I had a I had a few and I've just actually noted them down because I know I'm going to forget them and I know this is what I'm passionate about is one of them was making fertility treatment really affordable and accessible for people it's mm-hmm. fucking expensive a lot of people can't afford it I was one of the fortunate ones who actually was able to pay to have fertility treatment but not many people are in the same situation and they have no option so how can we make it more accessible to people that's one of my I would love to see that change. Another thing I'd love to see changed is policies in in companies. We need to update that. You know, women who go on maternity leave get so many great benefits and it's awesome to see. But what about women who are going through infertility? I feel like, you know, with taking time off for work for scans, taking time off work for injections and blood tests and you're not feeling well or you're going for egg collection, it's you know, whatever it is, whatever part of the journey of that that fertility treatment you're in, what are the benefits and what are the sort of, you know, how can we be supported in our workplaces as well as people who are going on maternity leave? So having special leave for women and or men who are going through infertility, infertility treatment, I think is something that we should definitely look at and updating those policies. And then Another thing is more societal is that women are more than just a mother. So this is something we see in the media a lot is women get portrayed as you are the bearer of kids, you know, this is your purpose in life. Well, it's not a purpose for everybody. What about gay couples? What about couples who don't want to have kids? What about couples who can't have kids? It doesn't make them any less of a woman 
because they are in a different kind of part of their life to a woman who has kids. You know, we get told in, through the media that a family is a mum, a dad, and kids. It's not true. Can be so many things now. It could be a gay couple with kids. It could be it could be a couple with no kids but have they have fur babies. Like, there's so many different variations of what a family should actually be termed as a family. You know, so I think we need to start changing the narrative around what first of all what a woman is portrayed to be. It's no longer just having babies. It's all sorts of things. You know, and I and I know I ended my chapter in the book by saying. I'm not a mum, but this is what I am. I am still worthy of a woman. So that's kind of the narrative that we also need to change is, is how do we how do we encourage people to understand that that's, you don't need to be pregnant and have babies to be a woman. It's not true. And I think Sim's real powerful end to that, to our book. Originally, Simone was actually, we did it alphabetically, it was going to be Mel, Simone, Steph. And so we'd written the book. And then when Simone finished up her chapter, like Steph and I both read it and we're like, oh God, that has like that is the end of the book. Like it just mm. has this thing. power. Even even mm. though, you know, Steph and I are now both mothers, we still feel that same way. I'm not just a mother. Mm. And we are lucky that we're in this space, but we could have just as easily not. And we feel that very strongly that let's stop making woman equals mother. Hundred mm. mm. percent. Uh, yeah the end of that book was powerful and I cried many times throughout it but definitely then and like I wanted to read it out but I'm not going to because people need to go read the book and that that like (laughs) we can't ruin that ending for them like and that's something that people like it's to me it was like a mantra that people can go and read Mm. um and I can imagine how you were feeling writing that it's a really yeah powerful way to to end the book and it, it's so important. We're not just here to reproduce. That's not our sole purpose. No. Uh, and it's not possible for everyone. So it's unfair it's for us all to, as a society, talk about that as our, being our sole purpose, which so many people mm-hmm. like to do. Yeah. yeah. Oh, all right. Like I said before, we chatted that we could talk all day. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but like I said, people need to go read the book. So where can people buy the book from? So if you're in New Zealand listening, we have a website, www.whensexisnotenough.co.nz, and you'll see our bios, you'll see the Buy Now link, and also um, any links to media. So um, you can listen, and, and yeah, there's there's more places of comfort should you need it or want to listen along. If you are not, uh, we have it on Amazon. So if you're in other countries, America, UK, wherever, I think it's about 17 other countries, we accept it. Um, you can either buy the ebook or your own soft copy. So pretty accessible, but definitely if you're in New Zealand, please use the New Zealand website before Amazon. Good to know. And it is, uh, you might have to type the website in because I went and had another look today. And because you've done so much media, like as soon as you type when sex is not enough, your media stuff will. Oh, I got to, yeah, I got to work out these ad words and stuff on Google. It's all above me. But yes. <laughs> we just literally sat down to write our story and all these things that we've had to learn to do, we're like, wait, what? <laughs> yeah. yeah, all these new skills that you have now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you all so much for coming on, talking, and uh, yeah, I it's so lovely to talk to people that are as passionate about this and spreading the word as I am. And even though I live and breathe this, and I talk to people every week and I share stories, it doesn't mean that if you're in the same position that this book isn't going to help you because it is going to help you. It's like your little pocket that you can just go and read and feel like you've got you know someone that gets it right there with you if you need to cry it's something good to go and read if you need to smile it's something good to go and read um but yeah I recommend it to everyone and I will put the link to your website in our show notes for people to go straight to as well so thank you all and thanks everyone for listening thank you so much if you've made it this far that hopefully means you've enjoyed this episode We would love it if you subscribe to the podcast and leave us a review if you haven't already. Also, be sure to follow us on Instagram at infertility underscore sisters. Thanks for listening.